I'm thankful to be here with y'all again. My wife had a desire to come today, but she wasn't able to. I spoke last time on, uh, I think I spoke out of Romans on the subject of predestination. And something I've been studying kind of along that vein is the subject of reconciliation over the past couple of weeks. And it's really in context of the doctrine of uh, limited atonement. And the word atonement in the 11th, chapter, 11th verse of Romans 5 is reconciliation. I don't know why the translating scholars of the King James Bible put that word there, but the word means reconciliation. Uh, it means what, what Paul says here is profound to all the children of God. Tenth verse, he says, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, reconciliation can also be found in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 18, I believe. Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, "...and thee in all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation." To it that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, we have to understand as we go forth that there are a few important things that we must keep in mind as we study this. The first is context. Paul uses the first person plural uh, pronoun here in the fifth chapter of Romans when he says we in the fifth chapter of Second Corinthians, he also uses in the 18th verse, us. Now, he does use the third person, not imputing their trespasses unto them in the 19th verse, but I'll get to that in a minute. The use of we and us we have brings into mind the fact that these are letters, these were letters written to individual churches. The book of Romans was written to all that be at Rome. More specifically, it was written to the beloved of God, called to be saints. That's out of Romans 1.7. We understand that the letter to the church at Corinth, Paul writes in his salutation, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in Achaia. So these letters are written to the churches. They are written to the beloved of God, to the saints. Paul includes himself in these letters when he speaks to the Roman church and says, when we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, I believe we all have a firm understanding of why there was a reconciliation that had to take place. We were we are all born as children of Adam, as descendants of Adam. Adam is our federal head. And even David in the fifty first Psalm was made to cry was made to cry out in the fifth verse, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that the act of conception was sin, but the fact that his very nature was mingled with sin from the day of his conception. 
You see, we as descendants of Adam, and as Paul proclaims in the third chapter, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3 and 23. Being descendants of Adam, we have inherited Adam's penalty, the death by sin. We have inherited Adam's sinful nature, and as such, we are born sinners, we are, con- we are conceived as sinners, and we come into this world as sinners, and there must be a reconciliation between us and the Most High God because God is holy, and in Him there is no darkness. John writes in 1 John 1 and verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness of- at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. The point that I want to get here is the fact that there was, between God's people and God, there was a reconciliation that had to take place because all of God's children, being born as descendants of Adam, have inherited Adam's sin, have inherited Adam's death penalty by sin, and without reconciliation, they, are, they will not be reconciled to God as children. And that reconciliation came by the death of His Son. That all of our sins being imputed upon Jesus Christ on that cross, Him paying the death penalty for every single one of our sins. Paul writing further in the fifth chapter of Second Corinthians, says at the last verse of that chapter, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the great exchange took place here with Jesus Christ being made sin for us who knew no sin, and we in his righteousness being imputed upon us, as Paul writes here, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Paul wrote also to the Romans in the third chapter on this imputed righteousness when he says of all who have... He says here, I'm going to go back to Romans 3 and 23. Actually, I'll go a little bit before that. Paul writing to the Roman church says in the 20th verse, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is, a, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So here you have the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon all them that believe. It is unto all and upon all them that believe. The atonement, as it's called in the 11th verse, is limited in this scope. It is not limited in its efficacy. I'm not going to get on that this morning. But it is limited in the application. Paul says that the imputed righteousness, which is a different subject, but it is involved in the way of salvation that God has ordained, the imputed righteousness of Christ is unto all and upon all those that believe. Here he says here in the 10th verse of the 5th chapter, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Notice that's in past tense. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of His Son. And in the 11th verse, he says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. I I, I put in the proper translated word. 
If you have a Strong's Concordance, you can go tonight and look up the, the number there is in the Greek Concordance 2643 for the word atonement, and you'll find that it does mean reconciliation. So you have the act of being reconciled to God by the death of His Son, and then the act of actually receiving that reconciliation. So in past, we, we always, that, that was always done. All of God's children, they were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And in time, there comes a point when they receive that reconciliation in the very depths of their heart. Their hearts being circumcised with a circumcision made not with hands. Now, you can, you can look back in the context of this chapter and you'll see the apostle starts, well, the, the translated scholars decided to start the fifth chapter by saying, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom we have, we have, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The very faith that is given to us by the gift of God, for Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This very faith gives us gives us access into the grace of God, into the very grace of His peace and the grace of His glory and actually being filled with the hope of the glory of God. And Paul writes, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. What, what wondrous faith Paul had. Go back and look through Acts and see all the trials and tribulations Paul went through. You know, he was put in, in prison in Caesarea for two years because the, Roman, the Romans just didn't know what to do with him. They, didn't, they knew he wasn't guilty of death, but they, didn't, they couldn't release him because of the uproar that it would cause in the Jewish community. And then he endures a trip to Rome, which in this day and age would just, would just try anybody's patience, being shipwrecked, being in the depths of the sea three days and three nights, being shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta, and eventually making his journey to Rome. But you, you notice, Paul, that's just one small tidbit of Paul's tribulation. He was stoned at Lystra. You know, they took him outside the city and stoned him, thought he was dead. He, he was continually having to go from one city to another. The, Jew, the Jews would chase him out of one city, and he would have to go to another and preach the gospel there, always being on the run. Now, Paul writes to the Romans and says, We glory in tribulations. That is the faith, that is the peace we have with God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith given to us. Because faith is given to us and by faith we hold fast to the promises of God knowing that His Word is immutable, knowing that He will do all the good pleasure of His will, knowing that His counsel shall stand. And at the same time, faith by faith, there comes a time by faith we receive the reconciliation in our very hearts. Now this... Like I said, this atonement's limited in its scope because in past we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now the 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 doctrine of unlimited atonement means that it is unlimited in its scope and application. It applies to everyone. Now what Paul says here is we were reconciled to God. The word atonement means reconciliation. So if atonement is unlimited, then that means the reconciliation is unlimited. And everyone has been reconciled to God. So I'm going to go now to the book of John. And then if the Lord will be with us, this will all be tied together. This is John 3.16. I don't even think I have to read this. We all know this verse. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believing, believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what King James says. If you look this up in uh, Green's Interlinear Bible, uh, Greek text, you'll find the literal translation says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the ones believing in Him should not perish. The word whosoever is not in the original Greek text. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In order to understand the limited scope of the, rec- of, of the atonement, the reconciliation, we have to understand the meaning of this use of the word world. Now, going back to 2 Corinthians 5 and 18, or 5 and 19, Paul said, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us word of reconciliation. So on the surface it appears that God has reconciled the entire world unto Himself in Christ Jesus. But the word world has, there are two usages of the word world out of the word, out of the Greek. One is, is, uh, and I'll probably butcher this pronunciation again, brother, is, is aeon, or eon. It means age. The other is the word cosmos. Cosmos means ordered arrangement. That's all it means. So you have to examine the context of the Scripture to understand, when you come across the uses of the word cosmos, to understand what the writer means by the word cosmos. It can mean the entire inhabited earth. It can mean a a specific nation of people. It can also mean a specific type of people, such as the Gentiles. The word cosmos, what I'm getting at, is a vague word that we have to examine the Scripture and rightly divide the word of truth to understand exactly what is being said here. God so loved the world. Now, if you turn to the 17th chapter of John, if God was reconciling the world unto Christ, then why would Christ, or the world unto Himself through Christ, why would Christ pray in the 17th chapter of John, in the ninth verse, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which Thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now the immediate context here is the apostles. Because he says, he says in the sixth verse, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. But those that are given to Christ are not limited to the apostles. Because he says further in the 20th verse, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So the apostles went out and preached the gospel. They preached repentance and forgiveness of sins, remission of sins through Jesus Christ. And Christ prayed not for the world, but for those that the Father had given him, those that were the apostles, and more specifically, those that, that believe on him through the apostles' word, through their preaching. Now you begin to see how the word cosmos, when it talks about God so loved the world, starts to get a little bit smaller in scope. I want to go to one more verse here before I continue on in John. And that's the first letter of John. Let's see if I can get this. And this is the fourth chapter, the first verse. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 
Hereby know ye that the Spirit of God, hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit which con- that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the, that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty plain. The fact that they were dealing with false prophets in that time, Antichrist, that had come out declaring that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh, there was... You know, we, we, there were several heresies even then that most, you know, a lot of people were going around saying that Jesus Christ has come only as a spirit or he, he was not made manifest in the flesh and was not housed in a body, did not physically walk and talk with his children, with his disciples. He only came in a spirit or he was a phantom or a ghost or an apparition. And John's very clear that those teachings are of the world and are not of God. There is a division here. There is a division of the world and a division of God. And yet in this point, the word cosmos is being applied to those that are outside of the church, those that are outside of the body of Christ. You see how the word differs in its application depending on the context. So going back to the third chapter of John, if we examine this a little closer, we begin to see that God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now the world here, we have the word. The world here is being applied to those that believe. And if you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, you'll see that more clearly. When Paul says in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter. And the fourth verse, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now you see, the love of God is not a, is not a passive love. It's not something that is not worked upon His children. It is an active love. It is a love that goes to great lengths, even to the point of regenerating His children with Christ Jesus, making them alive again and able to receive the very Word of God, the Gospel of Christ Jesus, happily into their hearts, and seeing Christ as their only, as their only Savior in this whole entire world. Just as the apostle declared in the book of Acts that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but by Jesus Christ. Now John says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here Paul further refines that application of love by saying, God who is rich in mercy for His great love even or wherewith He loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, God quickened us together. You see the application of God's love, the application of that word agapeo, the fact that God reaches out and quickens His children together with Christ. He loves them even when they are dead in sins. And yet, just as Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from all iniquity. God's love is applied unto His church, is applied unto His children, 
as such that they are quickened together with Christ. They are raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Paul says here, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Furthermore, the act of believing in Christ Jesus, believing that He is God made manifest in the flesh, that He is the Son of God come in the flesh, that He is the only way unto salvation, that just as Christ said, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can come unto the Father but by Him, that is a proof positive of God's love unto us. Now the question is, why do people believe? Why, why do people why do, why, why, why do we believe? What, what makes a person believe? I'm, I, and we've seen that it is the quickening of the Spirit which regenerates us and makes us alive again. That's what that word quickening means. Make alive. To make alive. And prior to being made alive again, we are in a dead state of being dead in sins and trespasses unto God. And God's reconciling work, being reconciled unto God by the death of Christ, and yet there is an active work upon the heart of the child of God in that they are given faith, they are made alive again, they are given faith, and they receive that reconciliation in their heart through belief, through faith. Yet how does all that start? Where, where is the very root of belief? Well, the Jews came out, the Feast of Dedication, they came out, and ask Christ, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. This is John 10 and 25 I'm in now. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And then he tells them, ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. He's not saying, you're not of my sheep because you don't believe. He's telling them, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. So now this thing starts to get a little more limited. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So, he's laid it out extremely plain to them. What do the Jews do? They took up stones to stone him again. He says, Many good works have I showed unto I've showed you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered and said, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy blasphemy, because thou that thou being a man makest thyself God. And the, this the discourse goes on. But the point here, going back to the twenty sixth verse, is ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. Now remember what he prayed in the garden in the 17th chapter of John. He prayed for those that the Father had given unto him. Now the ones that the Father had given unto Christ and Christ's sheep are one and the same. They are the same group of people. They are the children of God which were reconciled unto God in Christ. That is the world that Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians. He is speaking of the world of the believers. Because why would God, if God reconciled a people unto Himself, 
and yet left it up to them as to whether or not they would go unto Him, then Christ died for those people in vain. You see what I'm saying? Christ said, Christ said in the third chapter of John, He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So if we just go back and think through history, we have blatant proof even here in the Gospels that there were people who did not believe in Jesus Christ. They did not believe that He was the Son of God come in the flesh. And, be, and, and their unbelief sealed that. Their unbelief was proof of their condemnation. And the fact that they did not believe was due to the very fact that they were not of His sheep. Now, therefore, and Christ told them plainly, He told them this plainly in the 8th chapter of John. He told them in the 24th verse, or well, I'll start with the 21st verse. He says, Then said Jesus unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Whether I go, he cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. He's being very plain with them. That you will die in your sins because you do not believe in me. And then dying in their sins, if Christ died for them, then Christ died in vain. And the blood of Christ is most precious. It's most precious. Brethren, this, when we begin to look at this from this point of view, it begins to bring down the scope of the atonement. It's not, it doesn't rely on anything we do. Because Paul was, Paul was very plain in the, in the 10th verse of Romans that we were reconciled to God not by anything we have done, not by our belief. It doesn't say by our belief. It doesn't say by our potential or by the fact that we would cooperate with God. But we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Very plainly. That reconciliation is only unto the ones believing who are the sheep of Christ who were given to Christ by God Almighty before the world began. The proof text for that comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul writes, "...who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began." So we see from this that the, that the word atonement, one, means reconciliation. The act of being reconciled to God was done by God through the death of His Son. So God reconciled us unto Himself through Christ the Son of God. And He was reconciling the world unto Himself. And that world is the world of the believers, the sheep of Christ. I want to close out with, with a reading from the sixth chapter of John. And, and you know, I, I read, I find myself going back to John at least once a week and reading through it some because it amazes me how many times our Lord, I've never really sat down and counted it up, but how many times our Lord has said, has used the word give in the context of the Father has given the children of God unto Christ. He says, I'll start with, I'll start with the, uh, 35th verse of John 6, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. If we thirst, if we hunger, what does Christ say? He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never And He's not speaking of physical hunger and physical thirst. He's speaking of that spiritual hunger, the hunger for peace, the thirst for the love of God, the thirst for the Word of God. And He reminds us 
He reminds everyone, He that believeth on me shall never thirst. All that, and this is 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's a precious promise that I hold there. Especially that last part, I will in no wise cast out. So here is faith. Faith is given to us by God. Not faith in ourselves. And I know my faith goes up and down like a roller coaster. But it's faith in the promises of God. That God's Word will stand fast. It is everlasting. The Word of man comes and goes, but the Word of God is from everlasting unto everlasting. He, he has given us a promise that He will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. So we not only have a promise of being not cast out, but we have a promise of the resurrection. That at the last day, Christ will raise us up. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And you know, this whole, this whole sixth chapter is set in the context of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And, and, you know, these people are following him around. It must have really been a hard time back then. You know, it amazes me when he comes forth how many sick and paralyzed folks and blind people and people possessed with demons and just people that were just hungering for food was coming to this man, was coming to our Lord. You know, that, that miracle of the 5,000 there was something to behold. And rather than, you know, them being only, having only carnal eyes, they could only see the, the loaves and the fish. They could only see the immediate food before their eyes. And they followed him wanting that when all the time he was speaking of the spiritual food, the spiritual bread that he had. And the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Now obviously that, that doesn't mean hearing with the physical ears and, and learning with your mind, just learning the knowledge from an intellectual standpoint, because he was very plain with the Jews of who he was, of where he came from. The works that he worked were seals and proofs positive of, yep, what he says is true. He's the real deal. And yet they rejected him, because as we see in the 10th chapter, they were not of his sheep. So when he says he that hath heard and hath learned, he is speaking of that inward learning that comes from God Almighty only. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, and I will give for the life of the world. Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now they think he's espousing cannibalism. That's what, that's, that's what they say. If y'all think about that, that's what they say. They think he's talking about cannibalism now, which was, which was blatantly against their laws. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. 
Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me shall live by me. This then is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. Now, by God's grace, we understand we understand now what He's talking about of feeding off of Him. You know, we take part in our, in our in the Lord's Supper, and when we do that, we observe the symbolism. The bread doesn't really become His flesh, and the wine doesn't really become His wine, but they are symbolic. The bread being broken just as His body was broken. The the wine being poured out just as His blood was poured out. But the Jews, as the apostle wrote in First Corinthians. In the second chapter, when he said, What knoweth the man? The things of man, save the Spirit of man. Therefore knoweth no man the things of God, except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God has to be in us for us to understand the things of God. The Jews didn't understand what he was saying. They thought he meant, well, he's, he's talking about eating him and drinking his physical blood. So what, I, what I'm trying to, I'm trying to close this out. And basically, what happens is they depart. They, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Jesus replies unto him and says, Does this offend you? What, and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. And he closes by saying to the crowd, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. This whole chapter plays out with him making a final statement. And it says that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. With that final statement, no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. So you see, Christ reconciling the children of God unto God the Father, which is what the word atonement means. It was not applied to all those that did not believe, to those that would betray him, to those that would die in their sins. It was a being applied to the world of the believers, to those given unto Christ, to those who are the sheep of Christ. So I hope my week way we've all been edified by that this morning. Thank you, brethren.